Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast. My name is Ben Thompson and in this edition I'm going to be talking to Stuart Lee about his new book, Stuart Lee, underlined exclamation mark, the open quotes, if you prefer a milder comedian, please ask for one, close quotes, EP. Now, Stuart, that is one of the catchier titles. Thank you very much. It was um, partly... Well, the thing was, when I was... when I was, uh, I, I did a, a book for Faber about 18 months ago, uh, which was quite a substantial book um, of uh, transcripts of the last three stand-up shows that I did with a whole kind of biographical thing leading up to how I wrote them and all the things that happened, uh, you know, that affected the shows and whatever over that period. And... Um, and then I'm, and I'm doing another book for Faber in about a year's time on um, write, on writing stand-up for television and what's that like. But there's this kind of stray show hanging around which doesn't fit either of those books, a live show that I did. So we thought we'd do a little book of it. And the reason it's got that cumbersome name is because uh, I'm 43 and in 1979 stroke 80, when I was at a susceptible age, there was uh, a... Uh, the, the special's first album came out then there was a kind of cash-in. There was an EP of stuff that didn't really fit on the album of live tracks and stuff before the second album came out. And it was a very famous EP that got in the charts, the Too Much Too Young EP that had underlining, and it, we just copied the, uh, we copied the packaging of that as a, as a homage to the idea of a sort of... It's, not, it's, not a, it's like an, e, an EP. It's a seven-inch EP. Basically trying to sell a book in the age of the death of the digital world of virtual music by comparing it to a long outdated audio format. Well, this this is something that I wanted to ask that you quite often in your previous book and in this one that the sort of idea of yourself as a King Canute-like figure heroically but in a kind of doomed way resisting the tide of digitisation that that's a theme which emerges quite often and what one of the things about this book that really interests me is you're almost making an artefact out of, in a time when artefacts are often seen to be disappearing, you're making an artefact out of stuff people hadn't even made artefacts out of before. <laughs> like people will buy a stand up DVD, you know, many yeah. of them, but no one has ever previously bought a book about the slight difference in audience reception that occurred to one joke in one place and in another place. And is it sort of, it's almost like, um, I don't know, what is it? It's almost like photographing electricity, isn't it? What yeah, you... but, you know, it was interesting to me. I mean, I'm a. I'm a I'm a comedian, and I think I'm I'm probably slightly more interested in the nuts and bolts of comedy than some comics. And I think there's a, you know, there may be uh, some <laughs> reason of mental illness for that. But and when when I, I when I have read books about comedians, what I'm interested in is not who they were married to or what they drank or did they play golf. It's about I'm interested in the nuts and bolts of the of the creative process. And there aren't really any books like that by Steve Steve Martin's. Um, book uh, Born Standing Up and Tony Allen who was the sort of godfather of British, of British alternative comedy his book they're both more like that um, but there, there aren't really any and I was particularly disappointed in there's a Dave Allen biography that's just about golf and whiskey you know and it's sort of that was Dave's life don't prescribe <laughs> to Dave <laughs> sort of, I wanted to know what he was thinking of when he did those really long stories on television without an obvious payoff and, you know, what what's going on. So I thought, well, I'll, I, I mean, I'll write that book. Also, uh, I mean, I know you're you're a comedy critic, but there's more and more comedy being written about. When, when I started doing stand-up in the 80s, there weren't really comedy critics. The papers would sort of, you know, in the, well, the Scottish papers during the Fringe would sort of send some chef along or something to do it, and no one really had a critical vocabulary for it. And I sort of partly thought, look, let, let's write a book about the about the mechanics of comedy, because some critics are doing that now, but by no means all. And I kind of thought, if you can, 
if you can sort of explain what I'm doing, that y- you cannot like it, but you can't say I failed because I, <laughs> I did actually try to do this thing that people don't necessarily like. The other thing was, I suppose, and it, and it did sort of work, and I didn't realise that it would, was on, on some level writing a c- quite academic book about comedy. I thought, it, well, first of all, I thought it would be funny, right? That's why I really wanted to do it with Faber, not with anyone else, because at the back of my mind, I remembered reading the Faber uh, edition of The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot with all pounds notes all over it. Well, this is something I wanted to raise with you, that your first book was not not really, not an homage, not a pastiche, but it made reference to that um, annotated wasteland. Yeah, yeah. Your second book, The Faber, has, again, not an homage, well, more an homage than a pastiche, certainly, but refers to the specials Live EP, which went to number one in the charts, so yeah. I don't think, you know. <laughs> yeah. So there's clearly you've got commercial ambitions for this book, which are reflected well, in that fact. Well, I just thought it was funny to sort of... I thought it was funny. Initially, I, I thought it was funny to treat to treat the texts of stand-up shows as if they were worth annotating like a Coles Notes. But actually, pretty quickly, you realise it was, was actually quite, it was actually quite an interesting thing to do. And it, and it bore analysis. It did. And, um, and, and if we, what I want to do, really, is triangulate forward to the third book. Yeah. Is there a... You know, you've moved in one bound from T.S. Eliot to the specials. Do you have a clear aesthetic marker <laughs> that you're aiming to hit with the third one i don't, I don't know, know if you triangulate I mean, the third point from those two things i just don't i mean it could be anywhere couldn't it well it kind of depends what you know it kind of depends what the what the story of that book is the story of the first book was really clear which was i was sort of floundering around i didn't quite know how to connect with the audience that i wanted and then by the end of the third book which takes place over a kind of five-year period I'd got. A, I was making a TV series for BBC Two. This new the book after this one is going to be about what it was like making two two TV series of stand up in an era where television has quite a distinct idea of what stand up is, and I'm not really it. But the book hasn't got an obvious end yet because we still don't sort of know where we are with um, whether there'll be a third series. In in November, it looked like there definitely wouldn't be. And I quite I quite liked that in a way. That was a good it, ending. It was a good ending. Downbeat yeah. but affecting. Yeah, downbeat ending. Then. I got the British Comedy Awards. I got two British Comedy Awards out of the blue, which doesn't tend to happen to people like me. So that was an even better ending. You get two British Comedy Awards and you still haven't got a third series. But that, now it's all in limbo. Now and they've, they've gone and spoilt it by offering you they, stuff, well, might, haven't they? We don't know. It's all, but, you know, that's the funny thing is I'm come, I kind of thought... It's kind of funny, like... You, 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 what I've been lucky about is the, the sort of things that don't work out well for you in life. They often work out really well as stories or jokes or ideas for books. You know, the problem is <laughs> thank goodness it's a consolation prize. Yeah, but well, one the, worth the having. things are going better now. So that's a terrible sort of, story. No one's interested. I know they're not interested, <laughs> and actually, that's a part of what that book's about. If you if you prefer a mild comedian, is it's actually about touring after the first TV series. More people are coming to see you. You're doing bigger rooms, and yet the persona that I have as a stand-up, is someone who sort of expects things to fail or is not optimistic. And he, but it's quite hard to maintain that when you're performing in front of over a 1,000 people in Sheffield. You know, that, that, and, and they're, you, loving, they're loving your they like work. It, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen all. A lot, of, a lot of the gigs on that tour, you know, I talk about it, they were a struggle because people had come along kind of casually from seeing the telly or knowing that I was on the telly and then found it wasn't the sort of thing that they liked. And particularly... Any, any towns in Essex beginning with C and any towns in Yorkshire beginning with B, I tend to struggle in. <laughs> but, um, but I'll go back like a dog to its if, own if, vomit. If only there were more towns, you know, named for later in the alphabet. It might, yeah. might be easier. Good, I, yeah. I think towards the end of this book, you, you sort of compare the persona that you have 
at the start of the last book and the persona you have by the end of this book. And yeah. you describe you you sort of say that the the person you are in this new book you quite like because yeah. you're. Um, I think it's a desperate figure perpetually on the back foot, assuming no one's going to understand what they say. Whereas the first in the first book, when you were less successful, yeah. you, of necessity to survive, presumably, yeah. projected a more arrogant... Confident and yeah. arrogant, yeah. So the, the idea that the more successful you become, the less confident and arrogant you become is in itself quite interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose you have to apologise. When, yeah. when you're not successful, you don't have to apologise, but no. when you are successful, you kind of do. Well, also, you doubt why... If you're getting good reviews and winning awards, you start to doubt why people have come to see you. And you start, and you start to project things onto the audience. Like, after I got the British Comedy Awards at Christmas, I, I, I'm in the middle of a 16-week run of the show in London at the moment. After I got the British Comedy Awards, I started to think that there were lots of people in the audience who'd come to see this award-winning comedian... And that that's why certain jokes weren't working because they weren't really my crowd and they were expecting stuff that was more like Jimmy Carr or Michael McIntyre or something. And I kind of, and so for about a week, because of this, the shows were a bit of a struggle. And I used to try and talk to these people. Then, of course, I found out that all the tickets for those shows had sold like months ago. <laughs> so no one in that audience had come along as a result of me winning an award. And yet, my paranoia about it had made me play the shows quite badly because I was worried about who would come, you know. So I I find that having degrees of success or approval conferred on me makes me makes things harder for me. I'm sure there are other comics that feel it's everything that they, it actually smooths their path, but it makes me feel paranoid and suspicious about the crowd. For for 4 weeks later I've got to the point in the in the show where I managed to do something slightly different with that impulse and make it make a different thing out of it where I kind of pity them for coming and you know but it's it's an interesting <laughs> i mean one problem. of the, one of the things one of the problems which i think in a way the show which whose text is the bulk of the book is addressing is kind of what am i almost what am i going to say now i'm a bit more successful yeah. how can i how can i justify that yeah. and but also in terms of one thing that i think is a a battle that you're taking to a level that few people have taken which is the the tension of the critic practitioner um, yeah. which is traditionally, I think, the sort of Brody's Notes version of that is you can't use, if you're going to be both a critic and a practitioner, you can't use your critical instincts in the same way in the creation of your art as you do as a critic. Right. But that doesn't work for you <laughs> because no. your comedy has always had a strong for want of a better word, and this word may not actually exist, deconstructionist element from the beginning. Well, yeah, or sort of intellectual self-loathing, actually, <laughs> as well, where you sort of can do something and you work, and you realise how you've done it and you kind of almost resent the laugh that it's getting. So you have to kind of dismantle it on your own behalf and on that of the audience, then see if you can move the laugh to somewhere else. You and, know? And, and so, I mean, I'm, to be honest, I'm trying to do that less now because I felt like it, got, it, it kind of got to the end of itself and also I've noticed little kids doing it like 19 year olds on the circuit but they do it they do it really quickly in about 10 seconds <laughs> instead of like an hour that, they've not got your attention span that's no, why yeah, the minds have been destroyed but it's, it's kind of it is a fallback position I mean but I but I do think you, you know you, you can't you can't take apart something that doesn't exist you have you have to like you have to have a working act in the first place like I kind of because I've read 
reviews, you know, say he just takes it apart, there's nothing to it. No, but, but it actually, has to exist. It has to exist in the first place. I mean, that, that's sort of, you know, this sort of what um, Peter Blake said this about the um, the sensation generation of British artists, and I'm not saying I'm an artist or the same as them. Or even but, a sensation. Or even a sensation, but he sort of said... You know that his his generation of '60s pop art guys they they drew they learned to draw first and then they did conceptual art and his criticism rightly or wrongly of the Tracy Emin generation was they hadn't he said they haven't all done drawing that first. Tracy's well, quite good at drawing though yeah, exactly yeah, yeah, that. That's not a good uh, no, it's not a good um, Damien I don't know I know he can't draw he's just, he, he pays other people to draw other for people him to do it on a factory <laughs> but I did, you know what people forget is you know I've, I did I did. Ten years of five, six nights a week as a circuit comic, and I made a living out of that. So it wasn't like I wasn't, and that was at normal clubs, you know. I wasn't yeah, no, it's up, not. It's not. Like, yeah, no, I yeah, think it would be yeah. very, very unfair to say that. But I think what's yeah. interesting about presumably when you were writing this show, which you were doing after, yeah. if I remember rightly, after the book came out, yeah. this was the first show written by a comedian who had always, and particularly in recent years, deconstructed his work as it went out. Yeah. The first show you wrote with the awareness that you might well end up putting what you were writing down on paper and doing footnotes to it. Yeah, I don't, I don't Did know. Did that, that not trouble thinking. you? I, no, I wasn't, I wasn't really thinking that when I was doing it, but actually it did become hugely useful because... There were certain things in the show that the new book's about that became quite sticky in terms of assumptions that were made about them or ways they were misquoted in newspapers. And it was, and as that was happening, I was sort of thinking, oh, well, I could do a book about this. That's and something. I'll be able to Thank goodness Jan Moyer has misunderstood me know, so yeah. absolutely because that's an appendix if ever I saw yeah, one. Yeah, you know, and you can, you can think, you can at least explain what your intent was, you know. So, but I mean, it's, what, what is funny is that I've noticed that having written a lot about, how I think I do stand up. It's helped me, in some ways, to do to do to do things more quickly or get solved problems more quickly. Now I'm now I'm doing it on stage, and sometimes things that I wrote in the book as a kind of joke in the footnotes, I find myself saying them on stage. They're sort of kind of, I suppose the 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 thing about doing footnote heavy books was first of all it's a kind of it's a kind of joke about the idea of footnoting comedy as if it were worth doing that to it. Secondly, it's a, I wanted to make it analog. You know, I wanted it to be an analog book, not a digital book. I mean, they have made an ebook of it, but it gives me some pleasure to know that it was a very difficult for them <laughs> because there's so there was so. Did they try and did they try and put things in as hyperlinks? And you insisted the computer had to be turned well, off and on again before. I don't know, there were so many footnotes yeah. that created some glitches initially, but I wanted to write a book that you had to read like a book, and you had to choose which part of the page to look at. And I was very where that. The other thing about the footnotes is, you know, in the act you can kind of take on slightly different voices or throw the power to the audience at particular points and I suppose the footnotes do that job you know they have like they can change the emphasis of how the main text goes well they know. give you yeah I mean it gives you a different voice to yeah. comment on the on the yeah. comments doesn't but it? it but none of the you know the, fu the funny thing is none of the voices are the the stand-up is written if I had to simplify the stand-up it's like an adolescent sort of absolutist version of me uh, as, a, as a sort of absolutist teenager. And, and, and if we were looking at a Venn diagram of the um, adolescent absolutist yeah. version of you and the actual you, would yeah. those circles be the same size or would they be no, different? They don't, they don't overlap. <laughs> and then, then the person writing the footnotes is a sort of... It's like an exaggerated version of me now. It's so it wants to be taken seriously. A polytechnic lecturer version of yeah, you. Yeah, polytechnic from the version. Yeah, and so... But I'm never, I, I'm never really right as me in any of it. I don't, I don't know what I would say. You <laughs> don't know. You might, know. You know, you might be doing it all along and not realise. <laughs>
that would be the terrible. That would be like the moment in being John Malkovich when yeah. it's all John Malkovich's, wouldn't it? That would yeah. be quite alarming. I mean, do you do you ever find it confusing and, and see yourself and think which which voice you hear something coming out and think, well, which voice is this? Is this yeah. foot, footnotes due? Or although weirdly, somebody sent me something I wrote when I was fifteen the other day, an old essay in school, which was about a uh, a kid going out on Christmas Day and cycling, and he was annoyed with his family for various puritanical reasons about Christmas waste and stuff like that and then he finds this dead baby in the park and all the imagery of the baby and what it looks like is made from Christmas wrapping paper and you know what I mean and the kid, the kid in the book was actually quite a selfish unpleasant child and I couldn't work out if as a 15 year old that was me or, you or whether were. I was trying to write in character and I couldn't remember what I was like he seemed really irritatingly self-righteous and smug and yet at the same time there's no was, way that could have been you well exactly you couldn't I, could, I thought I hope there's some critical yeah. distance here. well I suspect there probably wasn't either it was a devastating satire of annoying TJ or yeah, it was just well, an annoying well, that's the funny thing about looking back on the in the first book where the first show's from 2004 I do think God I wouldn't say that now yeah, I'm well, glad that I did at the yeah. time. Yeah, I, mean, I thought you were being a bit hard on your 2004 <laughs> self, who I remember as being <laughs> fundamentally OK. Oh, well, thanks. Um, if we can just return to the artefact, because that's always a good... Uh, if you in favour, it was going to be a Latin crest that you yeah. were going to have, that might be a, quite a good one. Um, looking at the cover, obviously it is an homage slash pastiche of the cover of a special single. But yeah. there's... For those that are not familiar with it, um, there is your face at the front with a... How would you describe the expression? Slightly bewildered or static? You know, I try... I, try, I hate being photographed and I, because I feel like you, you're asked to communicate something, so I, I just try to do nothing, really. Make it evident that you're not communicating anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and are you... But also, it's the end of a long... You know, I mean, I'd done, a long day. I'd done two shows there and then they got the audience to stay behind and... I thought it'd be funny to just stand it, in the front looking like you didn't know what you wanted. It is funny. I'm trying yeah. to remember. In this original picture on the special thing, presumably the audience are kind of sweaty and exhausted. Yeah, and they are. have all been in a fight with yeah, some racists. Are. Yeah, and, and the, but there was also... There's a great thing on that. The, the sleeve of the special single of uh, the, the Too Much Too Young EP is they're looking over an audience of... A 1979-80 audience. Of course, you know... Conventional wisdom has us believe that all people in audience at that point were punks and skins. Actually, there's loads of long-haired kids. And, yeah. You know, it was like. But there's also a guy who perhaps wanted to be in the photo but wasn't there, and and his face has been cut out of another photo and stuck in and slightly the wrong size ratio. And uh, the comedian and actor Paul Putner, who's a bit of a specials fan, was insistent that that we should do this. The designers should. Perhaps for the paperback. Yeah, yeah, but but we never got round to it. And are you, I can't remember clearly, are you in the position of Terry Hall or no, Jerry Downers? No, none of the, none oh, of the none specials of the are in, no. Oh, just, that's a shame, I thought you tried to embody the schism no, which had befallen the band in its latter. No, I just stood there at the front the, making an inexpressive face. <laughs> uh, when we return to the um, critic-practitioner divide and obviously the, the perhaps more everyday way in which that's expressed is poacher turned gamekeeper and yeah. vice versa. And presumably there have been times through the process of these books coming out when you've felt a bit like the the gamekeeper going to get paid by the squire and sort of finding a load of feathers in your in your jerky. Yeah. Well you know, And that's but, a nice feeling, isn't it? I should well think. it is, but also the good thing is, you know that Basically, it, 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 having written those two, these two books about the, m the mechanics of how I think I do stand-up, uh, 
I, it ought to move me forwards, you know, because it means those the, a lot of the things that I've done there are sort of well, finished it de- with. It demands you know? that. You, I mean, probably demands probably you. you've moved forward faster as a consequence yeah. of doing that because you've had to think. You've not got to think, yeah. oh, I've got to do another show now. You've got to think, well, I've got to do another show in which I must be doing something which I wasn't doing in this other show. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's an, the, in the, the, that show is basically... That that show that, that that the new book's about was basically sort of three half hour routines. You know, there weren't. Um, I tried not to have any jokes in it. There was a lot of silences and long pauses. And whereas this new show, you know, the opening ten minutes is like anyone's opening ten minutes. Sort of loads of funny stuff happened, and then, and then, there aren't the same kind of. I didn't envisage it with having the same kind of long routines as the as the last one. So hopefully it'll be different. Um, I mean, I probably won't do another big tour now for three or four years, and I think that one will be what I want to see, what I want to wait and see what happens. I want to see what happens in the next four years. If if you get to a point where everyone understands, everyone if everyone in this country starts to understand the order of service of a stadium comedy gig where there are screens to relay the comedian's performance and whatever... And instead of doing 45,000 people over 80 shows in a 500-seater, I'd love to do one show. big rooms, yeah. but write a show that had the same critical relationship with the idea of stadium comedy as I sort of have with club comedy. And I, that would be really interesting because I be couldn't interesting. do really any, I could. I would have to change my personality on stage because I couldn't do the sorts of things I've been doing on it. You know, I mean, I, I was sort of coming here today and I was seeing all adverts on the tube for uh, martial arts classes and dance classes, and I thought maybe I need to be really good at something, like, like to have a huge fight on stage with loads of ninjas. Like WWF, you know. sort of yeah, world well, wrestling. I'm mean, kind of thinking, is there something you could do? Instead of, like, breaking the form of a joke like I do now, in a, could I break the form of the whole idea of what you're supposed to see on stage in those kind of stadium comedy shows? You know, because I sort of think... That, it, 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 you know, that that sort of. I'm now thinking 2017. What would, what would be the thing to do? One show, three cannon. <laughs> I know. Yeah, or be shot out of something into a net. Or I mean, I, I kind of think that also giving yourself that time frame means it would be it would be some sort of really strong. Get fit enough to be able to do something. I mean, in the, in that tour that this book's about, at the end I played a I played a song with a fiddle player. I played a version of uh, Steve Earle's Galway Girl. Because um, that's what the last half hour of the show is about. It's about use of music by advertising and the idea of selling out. And I like to think that I did it sort of well enough for people to be. People would think, oh, I don't know if he could play the guitar that well. Why has he not done it before? You know. I think you say in the book that perhaps the last taboo in comedy is someone the comedian doing something as well as he possibly and I'm paraphrasing yeah. it inaccurately, yeah, yeah, but yeah. as well as he possibly can in, yeah. in all sincerity. Yeah. Especially you of all people. I know. That's what I thought. Well, maybe the maybe the next thing is. Really go for it. Physical, you know. Cause, I mean, I've, I saw a review of me saying I look like a renegade from a from a, a camera splinter group, and I do have this sort of kind of slouchy slowness about me, and I kind of think to kind of hold on to that appearance, but to be able to do something quite dynamic would be uh, really funny. You know, uh, to be a physical clown. There's would be... never been a mime show at the O2, to my no. knowledge. <laughs> I'm not, you know, trying to say you've got to be the first, yeah, but yeah. it's definitely a possibility. I mean, but it, I remember seeing Circus Oz in the eighties, where they had magnetic shoes on and they hung upside down from the roof. You know, there might be, 
I mean, presumably that you don't have to be particularly fit to do that. You just have to have your shoes on really tightly. There might be some way of. It's e- it's easier if you're fit, probably. Isn't probably it? is easier to hang upside down. Yeah. But I mean, given that the sort of <laughs> the eighties alternative variety circuit, which was you, the the wellspring of your sort of yeah. comedic life in a way, there was always a bad magician in the well, four. Or some good magicians. Yeah. Some excellent magicians. I mean, there was, an act, there was an act that we used to see all the time that everyone used to go, oh, is he on again? And it was Pierre Hollins, right? And Pierre Hollins, but it was actually a brilliant act. He used to... But he only had that one act at the time. You know, he used to do jokes whilst juggling apples and eating the apples, right? I mean, the O2 and, would feel for that. Well, and it was sort of... It's actually... The material was OK. Mm. It was sort of... Then there'd be apples everywhere. And he, you know, it's sort of... Something like that I need to do, yeah. Learn to do something. And also there'll be a very sort of exciting circularity in that having been something that existed in those tiny clubs, having fed you, you were there like a parasite in the moor of comedy. Comedy became huge. No, no, it was health and safety gone mad. I remember you see the two Marks, which was uh, Mark Heap, who ended up being an actor on lots of TV comedies now and dramas. He was in space, wasn't he? Yeah, and another guy, and they used to do... They used to juggle fire on unicycles and they used to do this over the heads of the crowd in rooms above pubs. Right? And there's no, <laughs> it's just, there's just no way you could do that now. Yeah, I mean, health and safety culture could be the biggest problem for this <laughs> no, one man yeah. fire eating show at the O2 you've got planned. That, I mean, that's going to be difficult to represent in book form. Perhaps well, the counselling that you'd need to go through after it. You know, diagrams of set would be good. Diagrams, yeah. of, the, diagrams yeah. of the set. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the rhythm that you know, with with material, obviously, for a comedian, when a DVD comes out, it's kind of like, well, I've got to, you know, if you're a conscientious comedian, yeah, you think, you well, it. I've got to do something new. Yeah. And and this sort of interplay between the show comes, you, you maybe work up the show for Edinburgh, yeah. then it develops, then it goes to London, then some of it might be on TV, then yeah, the book yeah. comes out. Yeah. That's quite, an, a fa- you know, a complex rhythm, isn't it? Yeah, and, yeah. and you, throughout your career, have always taken... It seems to me, you know, you've taken a lot of inspiration from the world of alternative music, for want of a better phrase. Yeah. And, and in terms of the sort of critic practitioner thing, I was thinking that, you know, you think about Marky e. Smith, someone well, for whom your admiration is well known. Yeah. When he talks about other bands, yeah. for me, there's a mixture of, one, he's incredibly self-interested and untrustworthy. Two, he's devastatingly acute. Yeah. And and it's that combination where utterly un- unapologetic about the fact that I'm slagging off someone that's more successful than me because I want to. And I'm going to do it so brilliantly that you have to enjoy it. Yeah, but he also does it from a position of he knows that that all the smart people know that he's um, still ahead of the game. Yeah. Right? <laughs> he also knows that he's not appreciated. Yeah. So it's perfect, right? Because he, you know, he can... He can he can slag off all these other bands, and they've got no comeback actually, because he's he's written a half decent album every year for thirty five years, right? Yeah. And he doesn't play the hits, no. and he keeps on moving, <laughs> and, and he's you know he's still a very interesting figure. Most of them will get be lucky to do three records, of course. You know, so and he, so he, he's sort of able to do that, and he. But also, there's a great affection in it as well. I think when he makes fun of people, there's or like the hope so. Anyway, I think been yeah. the uh, having been the, the butt the, of his humour many times. Like, you know, I think I think it's sort of like letting them know that you're there, and I and I kind of think that I've I've sort of assimilated this a bit from him and a bit from uh, Sadovitz as well, although I think Sadovitz means it more. That actually, in for example, in the current show, I do a bit where I'm making fun of this quite quite unpleasantly of this current trend for 
morbid shows where comedians talk about some personal loss or illness they suffered or you know mm. and and I so I'd never do that and I hate it and I dismiss it out of hand and say it's absolutely unforgivable to try and base a whole show on the death of a relative or whatever but then later in the same show I basically do a bit which is exactly that and um and I and and I hope people make the connection that whilst dismissing it you then you then go on to do it I, I, because it's fun to be in the in character of this annoyed person a bitter person jealous person it's also fun to actually give voice to it rather than having to bottle it up <laughs> it's healthy it's, it's healthy yeah. yeah but it's also good to be able to say and you know normally for example in the it's, it's in the tv series that i wrote after the show that the book's about i did a whole bit about the young comedian russell howard doing um not doing enough charity benefits uh in in proportion to the amount of money that he earned and, and now is he swimming around the world for comic relief just he to prove be. that he's but a the good thing bloke. Was, the problem is is somebody obviously put out a press release saying he earned four million quid a year which obviously doesn't it was clearly a a composite of various figures uh designed to inflate his market position yeah. and then there was another press release came out about how he'd earned x hundred thousand pounds for some charity by going cycling and i thought oh, it's really funny that both those press releases are out the character of Stuart Lee doesn't earn that amount of money but does much more charity work in a year yeah. than this guy does. So he would go on about that. And like bef people had sort of seen the routine, but he hadn't. And before it went out, people were saying, what are you going to do if you meet him? And I went, it would be fine, you know. I did meet him and he was annoyed about it. But that was before it had gone out. And if he'd seen it, I'm sure he wouldn't be. Because if, if you've got a comedy brain, you can see that the... There's character stuff going on in there as well, you know. You can theoretically see that, but I think people are inclined when they hear their own name, they're in, they're, that some of their critical faculties tend to go out the window. Well, you know, I mean, maybe, but I, I, I mean, I suppose it's different because I, I sort of welcome it. I and anyway, I, this is Russell Howard's critical faculties we're talking well, to, about. Well, to some extent, I find it funny. I mean, there was an interview with Frankie Boyle the other week where he said I was. He thought I was irrelevant and flabby, and of course it's a great quote. It looked very good on the poster. It did look good on yeah, the poster. Yeah, I mean it's really funny because it's sort of, it, it also makes you look quite confident, to sort of absorb it and go there you are. And also I think, I don't think my acts are relevant and flabby, but I think that the comedian Stuart Lee might. He would probably worry about that. He would think it would play on his mind. I'm irrelevant and flabby, and like I've seen him drinking alone in coffee shops. That's what I mean. Anxious. Yeah. So you sort of think it's kind of actually it's sort of perfect because. It's almost good enough as a title for a show that irrelevant and flabby, you know. So it's sort of give it a couple, a couple more, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So you can, if you can kind of separate, you can, you basically create a kind of schizophrenia, you know, where you se separate. I hope that's not a crass thing to say. I suspect it probably is. But, no, well, uh, they are different. You know, they yeah. are different voices in your head. I mean, voices, and you need to, I mean, I've been, to, I've been doing a film for, for this. Um, well, I've not been. I've been doing the interviews for a documentary for. Uh, a Luxembourg director Anton Prum about the free improvisation scene. It's interesting talking to improvisers in music, musical improvisers, about when they're improvising alone. When you're improvising with someone else, obviously you're creating a dialogue. When they're improvising alone, on some level they presumably have to. You're creating a monologue. Create a, well, they have to create a kind of dialogue yeah. to create that monologue. They have to create a. a yeah, there have to be different strands in the music yeah. that they're reacting to in their own heads. Yeah, yeah. and so and so what I'm what what I try to do is there's. I'm trying to do the show as well as I can, but there's also part of me trying to sabotage it and and do improvisations that I know I probably can't pull off or or make the audience not like me to kind of create... I try to create problems that I then hopefully can solve. And so, and presumably that's something which develops as you're 
basic competence in the field of comedy is established, yeah. you then you need to be challenging yourself. So you think, well, I'm going to make it a bit more difficult yeah. for myself by, as in this book, saying well, something you know, terrible about Richard Hammond. Yeah, well, this show... This, I mean, that show, I did, that, I did the show that was about, about 100 times, probably. This current one, I'll do it 170 times. It's a shame because it gets reviewed during the first 30 times, right? And then after the first 30 or 40 times, it, it kind of stops... It stops sort of being the show. It becomes, it's got the story of whatever the material is. It's also about how you can change the texture of it and sabotage it and what can you do with it. It becomes a kind of platform for other things. But that obviously, you go back to it, and it's much more interesting in that point. In yeah. a way, I assume that for you creatively, that that's actually quite nice because you think, yeah. well, we'll get the public face of the show out of the way. Then yeah. we can have, you know, we can go, we can delve deeper and see that's what it becomes. It. Yeah, what it becomes. I mean, that, that, the, with all the books that are about particular shows, they're about the whole run of that show and the and the process of creating it and whatever. But the actual transcript is always from one night because you can only ever get. And at one point, I toyed with the idea of putting in different bits from different nights. And I thought, you know what, just one night. And what's great about the one in that book is um, that there was something that happened at the start of it that never happened before, which is it happened a bit where I tried to engage someone in the audience in a in a dialogue where they I want them to tell tell me and the audience what is on this coffee loyalty card that I've got, what the amount of stamps are. And the stamps are quite blurred, and so normally you'd get different responses, and I knew what, was, what response I was trying to get them to give. And what was great about the night we recorded that in Glasgow was you know, people in Glasgow, they're, they're, they've been trained up really well by comedy promoters over the years, one way or another, and they, they a weak act, they will kill it immediately. But what what they like to do is get a knack that they think might be strong enough to survive, and then try and toy with it like a cat. You know, <laughs> they try and keep you on the edge of death, and then they let you go, mm. right? And that and that's what's happening there. That all of the people that answered my question are trying to make it awkward for me. They're not necessarily trying to be funnier than me. They're not. And they're not trying to destroy me. They don't want to do that. They want to keep you in the antechamber <laughs> to failure. And, it, and it, so you, it actually led for about. 20 minutes half an hour that you know but and there's all the responses with the people put in and obviously that's out of my hand you create you create an environment for that to happen you also you also play low status to allow them to think they can do what they want let them they're toying with play. you that's what you have to do with the cat if you're a yeah, sparrow is play dead and then you might get a well, chance God, to you know what I mean, i've watched it happen and it makes me think of being a stand-up in glasgow you know i've seen a, my cat killing a mouse and the mouse in the end gives up and stands still and it's like it waits, and it thinks, I'll just wait this out, and maybe it'll go, and it never gets away. That's the difference between a Glasgow audience and you stand a chance, <laughs> but the mouse will die. <laughs> and just, just to finish, in returning to the, the, you know, the idea of the, how you created the books, and you thought, well, it's got to be one performance, and that brings us very nicely back to the specials. I don't know if the specials live VP was all one performance, but I would imagine it probably was. And kind of with a live album, you'd want... People might think you'd want all oh, the best bit from Sarajevo and the best bit yeah. from Brighton, but actually you want one performance, yeah. even if all the performances on the tour were the same. Yeah. You just want one performance. Well, and yeah, I mean, and also sometimes you want a special performance. I mean, there's 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 some of those great live some of the live albums people like. I think it's it's legal now, but it was a bootleg at one point. Metallic uh, Metallic KO, KO Iggy Pop and the Stooges, which is. 
him basically being fought off stage by Hell's Angels who don't like him. And uh, that's a good recording. One of my favourite comedy recordings, and it's not interesting to be here talking to you about it because you're someone who'd know about it, is the stand-up that made me want to be a stand-up, Ted Chippington, on the lone album that he put out, Man in a Suitcase, in about 85, 6. There's a great 10 minutes of him basically being heckled off by an audience that don't get him. And you know that he knows he's good. And and in the end, he just sort of lets them do it because almost like he was thinking in 20 years, people are going to find this hilarious. And it's still one of the funniest things. It's nice to document the failures. And I was really glad that that show... It's nice to the people of Glasgow to give yeah, you that opportunity to, elements live, of failure to, to live that dream. Recorded. Well, um, I think that'll do. Thanks, Thanks very much.